and it's okay. Erev Tov to all. Uh, we are looking at a particular theme that is um, front and center of Pashadrei, among all the many themes that are there. But there's an idea which I was looking to try and get a bit of understanding on, and that is the nature of the way the Torah communicates to us about Yerushalayim and uh, and the Beit Hamikdash. Now, when we uh, when we actually find our uh, way into Eretz Israel, so one of the the one of the first mitzvot that we are instructed to engage in is to wipe out uh avoid Zora, that all the all the idols that exist in in Eretz Israel. We're supposed to do like a a sweep across the land and uproot all the avoid Zoras that are there. And um as as a counterpoint to destroying all the types of uh, uh idols that are there, we'd be we we're given a specific mitzvah to actually create a, a Beit HaMikdash as a focal point for spirituality um, within, within uh, the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does Hashem tell us? Hashem tells us in a, in a very kind of a uh, enigmatic way. It's very camouflaged how Akash um, Baruch talked to us about, about the Beit HaMikdash. Um, essentially, Hashem doesn't, doesn't name or identify the Beit Hamikdash at all. Um, Hashem tells us that um, you know, Kilo You you now have have come. You know you haven't yet arrived there, but you'll you'll get there. Um, you know to the place that Akosh Baruch Hu is going to rest. Um, to the inheritance that Hashem is gonna is gonna give you. Um, so this is the this is the kind of uh, camouflage that Hashem talks about this the, the place of the Beit Hamikdash, the Makom Asher Yivchar Hashem, the place that Hakadosh Baruch Hu, uh, chooses. Um, this is this is it doesn't explicitly state the nature of the Beit Hamikdash. Just tells you you know in Dvarim Perik Bet it just talks about the place that Hakadosh Baruch Hu will choose to rest his. And it's over there. you will bring all the sacrifices that I command you. This is uh, this is the nature of uh, of the communication. So all we get is we we uh, in touch with this idea that Akosh Baruch is going to choose the place. It's called the. Menucha and the Nachala that Hashem will give us. Now, the the Gemara in Masechet Zvachim, the Gemara tells us that the phrase that that is um, the phrase Ela Menucha to the to the resting place. What 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 is that referring to? Is it the, is it the same thing as Nachala? You got Ela Menucha Vela Nachala, the resting place. And the inheritance. So the Gemara differentiates between the two phrases. The Gemara interprets that the menucha, the resting place, is is not is not the permanent place. You're going to have a station before you get to the destination. The resting place is Mishkan Shilo. It's where the Mishkan is going to. It's going to be there for quite a long time, 
we eventually spent 369 years there. Um, but essentially, that's not the actual permanent place. The inheritance, the Nachala, that refers to Yerushalayim. So it's kind of, in a sense, uh, a type of coded prophetic message, according to the way the Gemara interprets, that the Torah is telling us that the, the journey of Am Yisrael's um, uh, Mishkan concept, Mikdash concept, is going to go through a number of stages. And um, and what we know well to have materialized is that Am Yisrael are instructed in the desert already to construct a Mishkan. That's completely uh, portable. Then when we get to Eretz Yisrael, we eventually, the, the Mishkan, which was portable with them in the Beit HaMikdash, travels with them, and it uh, lands up in a place in, in a place called Gilgal and stays there for 14 years. And then it travels from there to Shiloh and it remains there for 369 years. Um, and there's another 57 years of relocation until eventually the Beit HaMikdash was dedicated in Yerushalayim, replacing the Mishkan. So we go Mishkan in the desert, we go Mishkan Shiloh, uh, and then we get to the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. Now, this particular journey, I was trying to uh, understand what what happens there. Like, why, you know, what do we take out of the fact? What's the nature of the Mishkan compared to the Beit HaMikdash? Are they, how different are they? What do we, what do we understand from, from this? Now, there's some Mishnayot that uh, instruct us about the differences uh, between the Mishkan at Shiloh and the, and the Beit HaMikdash. So there's quite a well-known uh, Mishnah in Masech and Megillah, where the Mishnah, the set of Mishnayot are called Ein Bains. Ein Bain means there's no difference between X and Y except for A, B, C, and D. So the, the, the Mishnah there says in Masech and Megillah, the the Mishnah says that there's the only difference between Shiloh and Yerushalayim is the following that Shiloh they were able to eat Kochim Kalim, Kochim Kalim or Korbanot, they sacrifices, where the level of sanctity, the level of holiness is of a lesser caliber than what we call Kochai Kochim. Kochim Kalim, you know, is the word kal is lighter, a lighter level of, of holiness and a heavy uh, level of holiness. So the the lighter the lighter level of of kochim kochim kalim, um, you are able to eat kochim kalim and masashani. Masashani, you may be aware, is um, in the cycle of seven years, uh, counting up to the shemitah year. So years one, two, four, and six, uh, one, one, two, yeah, one, two, four, and five, um, those, the produce that you, the yield that you generated from your produce in the field would be tzedakah. You'd have to give Misa on that. Um, and once you've sorted out the koyan and the levy, you know, with the, with the truma and the Misa and the Misa Rishon, what was left over once you had taken over, given out all of those maestrot, 
you had you had to take a tenth of what was left and either redeem it onto money or actually take the produce with you, but you had to eat it in Yerushalayim. Now, when Yerushalayim wasn't there, you just had Mishkan Shiloh. So you didn't have to actually go to Mishkan Shiloh. You know, you didn't, you, you could actually, you could, you could, let's say, take the produce and you could turn it into food, whatever dish you wanted to create, you know, and you would then, you would then journey to a, a, uh, a, a, view, a viewpoint, a place where you could see um, Shiloh. So you didn't really need to go to Shiloh. You could, as long as you went there, you know, as long as you could see it, then you were able to eat the, the Maise Shani there as well. Once Yerushalayim was established, you had to get into Yerushalayim, into the walls of Yerushalayim, in order to eat uh, Kochim Kalim and Maise Shani. And that was, that was the major difference between these two, um, these two holy places. Shiloh, therefore, is really a, it's a really high level of Kedusha. I mean, it's not as Kadosh as the Beit HaMikdash, you know, but it's still pretty, it's, it's, the only difference between Shiloh and Yerushalayim is, is that you were able to eat these korbanot, um, you know, from the place that you could see Shiloh, uh, whereas with Yerushalayim, you had to get into the actual, uh, had to get into the actual walls itself. Now, it's interesting that what do you what do you uh, interpret from that? Do you say that which is holier is Yerushalayim holier than Shiloh or Shiloh holier than Yerushalayim? So, if you say that, you know, um, in order to eat the foods, you have to be inside the walls of Yerushalayim, which means that the eating of these foods. Um, has to be within the walls of Yerushalayim. Whereas, as far as Shiloh is concerned, you know, you could you could eat this, you could make a a korban, you know, a korban pesach, for example, and uh, you could eat the korban pesach in the days when there was no Yerushalayim. You could eat it from a, a vantage point where you could see Shiloh. You didn't have to go there. Once Yerushalayim was established, you had to go into the walls of Yerushalayim. So what do you what do you take out from there? It sounds like from this law, it sounds like that the kedusha of Shiloh, in a way, is greater than the kedusha of Yerushalayim. Normally, we understand it the other way around. We normally think that okay, the Mishkan was level of kedusha A and Shiloh is B, and Yerushalayim is C, and you're just elevating the level of sanctity until you get to Yerushalayim. So we normally understand Yerushalayim as the the most holy um, than anything preceding it, including Shiloh. Uh, and, and this makes sense in terms of the actual uh, the the words of the the words of the Tanakh, the words of the Torah as well. The Torah says, "Kilovatem at Ata ela menucha vela nachala." You say menucha is the resting place. That's Shiloh. Nachala, that's not the inheritance. That's the permanent place. That's that's Yerushalayim. So the way the pasuk in, uh, uh, sort of sets it in, up for us is that, you know, Mishkan is the lowest level of kedusha. 
Mishkan Shiloh, slightly higher level of Kedusha. Yushalayim, the highest. But in terms of the dinim over here, it, it seems to be um, the opposite. Like Yerushalayim is not holy enough to be able to allow you to eat the korban unless you see it, unless you're in it. Whereas Shiloh is holy enough for you to be able to eat the korban only if you see it. You don't have to. You don't have to go there. Whereas the pasuk seems to be saying that Yerushalayim is holier than Shiloh. So it seems to be a kind of a uh, an interesting potential contradiction over here, which we need to resolve. This particular this particular question um, is tackled by the Shem Shmuel uh, in his uh, commentary on Torah, and um, he deals with this particular problem. And he starts off by telling us as follows: He says, "Let's have a look at some other points that the Mishnah uncovers with regard to the place called Shiloh." Now, there's a Mishnah in Masechet Zvachim which tells us how the construction of the of the of the Mishkan at Shiloh, what did it look like compared to the Mishkan in the Midbar and, and Yerushalayim's Beit Amigdash. So when you look at it as to how we constructed these actual uh, holy places, so what you find is as follows. Looking at all the different uh, materials that were used to construct the Mishkan, um, this is what you'll find. So we look at we look at all the psukim in Pasha Truma, and it tells us the Mishkan was made from a very a variety of materials. Now, the walls, what were the walls of the Mishkan made out of? So we talk about Atse Shittim Omdim, we're talking about uh, the wood from acacia trees. Um, these this was these this was the the walls were made out of wood. Uh, yes, in order to in order to keep them upright, they were they were slotted into uh, adanim, you know, silver sockets, and these sockets, sort of at the base of the of the wood, uh, the silver metal would support these beams. I mean, it really is interesting because silver silver is not really known, to the best of my knowledge, as being a a very strong metal. You know, stainless steel is something else. But when you're talking about, you know, about it's silver. I mean, maybe I'm not uh, fully understanding the nature of the silver they used in the Beit Amigdash, in the Mishkan. But but really, whatever we have of silver is quite delicate. It's not nearly the same. So one could possibly say that Akash Baruch used got us to use silver, silver sockets, almost like a you know, okay, there's going to be a miracle over here. These silver sockets are going to support these massive beams, but silver doesn't really do the job. But okay, even if we put that aside for the moment, bottom line is, is that all, all you have of metal is these silver sockets, but really the actual the actual walls itself are made out of these wooden beams. Um, fine, so you have your walls made out of wooden beams. Then you have your roof. Um, what would you... You know, you remember now from Pasha Truma what you had as far as the roof was concerned. So yeah, um, we had we you know the, the Torah tells us to make these curtains, uh, which would be the roof, and the curtains were made from wool and goat's hair. So essentially, the actual Mishkan itself, 
um, was made uh, out of materials, mainly out of wood and wool and goat's hair. Right? That's really that's really what we have for the Mishkan in the in the Midbar. Now uh, we find we find a a well known uh, uh, concept that um, in the days of the Mishnah, they would divide the world into uh, four categories. You know, um, you would say like this, the lowest level uh, of spirituality is to be found in uh, the inanimate world. And it's referred to in the world of uh, Jewish philosophy as domain. Domain means it doesn't speak. It's 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 you know it's it's a stone. It's something that's like just you know inanimate. That's it. Just a domain. It's like mineral. We call it mineral. So that's the lowest level because it has no independence. It can't move on its own. It can't you know it's there to be impacted upon as opposed to anything else. Um, and from from that level, the lowest level of domain. You know, that world includes stones and sand. Um, the next level up is what we call uh, Tzomeach. That is like, uh, that's the plant world, vegetable, so mineral, vegetable. There, it's a, it's a little bit, it's, it's more advanced than domain. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a level higher. It's got a certain kind of, Almost another type of um, it's it's got growth potential within itself. There's a kind of a, a lifespan, um, but it still can't operate as as a, an independent entity most of the time. You know, it's rooted to the ground; it can't move. Granted, there are some uh, interesting species of of plants which uh, which can actually snap on you. But in principle, it can't move from the ground itself. The next level up is what we call high, that is the animal kingdom. And that has a higher level of existence. Um, it's, it's in theory independent. It can move around. Um, it's, it's, its level of existence is on a higher plane than the one below it is Samayach and the and the lowest is domain. And at the top of the, uh, the pyramid um, is the human being. And there, Chazal referred to it as, we are called medabrim, those who speak. Speech is essentially a human quality, which is an expression of consciousness uh, and ability to think. And, and that, uh, that is uniquely human. And so there is this concept of, of dividing the world into these four categories. Now, looking at the Mishkan in the desert, the Mishkan is constructed almost exclusively of elements from the world of Chai. In other words, you know, it's taken off an animal and, uh, and, and, and then it's, um, you've got wood, and wool, and there's only a very small part. The silver sockets come from the world of domain, like a kind of metal. 
Now the Mishkan at Shiloh, the Mishkan at Shiloh had a had, had a semi-permanent status. And there the building materials start to change. So in the Mishkan, we, we just expressed that the Mishkan had wooden walls. At Shiloh, the wood was replaced by stone. And the Mishkan Shiloh, um, you know, yes, it had some animal materials. The roof uh, was still still continued with the curtains that were retained from the first Mishkan, but it included much more content from the inanimate world. So when you go and you visit the ruins of Mishkan Shiloh today in the settlement called Shiloh, there they show you that there were these stone walls, which they remnants of them that are left there now, and they've sort of renovated some of them, so they, I think, draw a black line and to show you what the original, uh, you know, the, the original stones that weren't completely destroyed, and then the other bits they, they, uh, they, they, uh, they essentially add to it later. But when you get to the Beit Hamikdash, there the walls are of stone, and and the roof, the roof is made of wood. So essentially, the materials used to construct the Beit Hamikdash are from the inanimate and plant and plant worlds. So um, this is a this is interesting because when you now look at it from this point of view, as the nature of the materials that are used in Mishkan in the Midbar, Mishkan Shiloh and Yerushalayim, you start to see actually that the Kedusha uh, progresses downwards. If the material, if the building materials are an indication of the amount of spirituality here. So the, Mish the Mishkan in the desert, you know, that there you have the, the amount of low-level materials, the amount of inanimate materials um, was the least amount used. You know, there was, there was no stone at that point. There's no stone. All, you know, you had, you had wood and then, you know, skins or, or material coming off animals. As you then leave the Mishkan, which the materials represent uh, a higher level of material used. Um, so the original Mishkan contains very little domain, very little inanimate material. This now progresses through Shiloh, where there's more stone and no wood, until eventually you get to the Beit Hamikdash, where no animals material, no animal materials were utilized at all. So it's evident that the Mishkan at Shiloh was a more physical entity than the Mishkan, the the, the, the Mishkan in the Midbar. Um, it contained, you know, less spiritual materials. The Beit Hamikdash was even more physical than the Mishkan in Shiloh, as it was made from it was made entirely from stone and and wood. So this is interesting how from this point of view, the Shami Shmuel suggests we look at it. Um, and, and he, he tries to demonstrate that the construct the materials used for its construction uh, you know are essentially uh, telegraphing a message as to what the role 
of the Mishkan and the Beit HaMikdash were. So the, you know, the Mishkan, as the name suggests, it's um, it's it's the most holy in the sense that Akash Baruch Hu's presence was 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 palpable, and it was a unique location for Akash Baruch Hu, you know, yeah, on on a physical earth. So you know, Shlomo Amelech when he davens as uh, related to us in Melachim Aleph, you know, Perichet where Shlomo Amelech davens um at the dedication ceremony of the Beit Hamikdash, you know, he he, he talks about Akash dwelling among Am Israel. The aim of the the aim is for the Shechina to permeate every aspect of of creation, whether human, animal, plant, or even uh, the mineral world. And in order for Akash presence to uh, be represented in this way, so. We draw Baruch, we use all the aspects of nature um, in such a way that it's a staged progression of drawing Baruch, drawing Hashem's holiness into the, the creation one, one step at a time. Now, it's interesting that for in order to infuse all the different uh, components of creation with Kedusha, um, the animal is, in a sense, the one that's closest to us as as humans. So we we sort of can relate to the uniqueness of an animal because of how it operates. It's uh, it's not it's not human, but it's definitely an independent life force. Uh, and so we sort of feel that okay, there's something here. That we can work with within the animal world, and the human being has an exercise to infuse the animal world with kedusha, um, and to appreciate uh, its spirituality. So we are able to actually interact with animals on that on that level. But it's a little bit harder to feel a, a, a relationship with um, the, and the, the the vegetable world and 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 the mineral world. The animal is closest to the human being in the hierarchy. The others are, are less so. So the evolution from the Mishkan to the Beit HaMikdash, you know, is a little bit clearer now because what's happening is it's supposed to reflect um, uh, the progress in achieving the basic aim of the whole exercise. So at first the Mishkan is made of wood and wool, but very little metal. This is supposed to reflect Kali Israel's uh, limited ability at this stage in the history to attach holiness to the rest of the world. It progresses then to Mishkan in Shiloh, which is made out of stone and wool, and eventually progresses even further to the Beit Hamikdash, where um, we can we can essentially infuse the whole of creation, even the lowest orders of existence, the stones. The whole place is made out of stone, and we infuse it with with kedusha. So it's our ability now to to build, to use the stone and make the roof out of out of wood. And the you know the expression, the indication over here is, is that Amisrael are able to now infuse kedusha in even in even plants and stones. And at this point in time, Akash Baruch Hu's presence rested. In every corner of uh, creation, 
And so uh, this progression in the eyes of the Shemi Shmuel explains why the Beit HaMikdash is described as Nachala, the inheritance, uh, where, the, where, the, where the word implies a certain level of permanency. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to move from over here. Only once the Beit HaMikdash is constructed, uh, you know, in a, in a permanent manner, um, could we say that we've achieved the purpose of sanctifying all the aspects of creation um, only only then, once the Beit HaMikdash was constructed, could we have achieved this. And so in this respect, the Beit HaMikdash was um, greater than, than Mishkan, Mishkan Shiloh. But, but so now looking back at our original question, um, why was the why was the the consumption of korbanot restricted to the area inside the walls of Yerushalayim, whereas at Shiloh, as long as you were in sight of the Mishkan, that was good enough. So we we just basically said that. Listen, Shiloh is definitely less holy than Yerushalayim, and and the the materials that were used to construct it was uh, was evident. It was made out of stone and animal wool. And the holier the entity, the more private and restricted it is. And therefore, the Kedusha of Shiloh was weaker and therefore less restricted than Yerushalayim. And as a result of that, you know, Korbanot could therefore be eaten anywhere in the vicinity which you could see it. Whereas in Yerushalayim, you had to actually find yourself in the in the confines of the of the walls itself. Anyway, that was a that is a chidush as uh, as much as we can digest it to trying trying to understand exactly um, how we understand the progression, so to speak, of uh, of the Mishkan going from the Mishkan in the Midbar to the Mishkan at uh, Shiloh and then eventually to Yerushalayim. Now we have a. We have a comment uh, elsewhere in in uh, in Torah, which talks about the level of kedusha that exists within these three different uh, areas. And in fact, it actually adds another level, which talks about the second Beit Hamikdash as well. That needs to be seen in the equation. And uh, the Rishon, the Svarno, writes about this. Uh, in his commentary on uh, on Bukotai, um, or actually Bukudai, on, on Bukudai. Bukudai is the Prasha where we, sorry, not Bukudai, Bukudai, where we take an accounting of all the materials, you know, that were that were used to um, to build the, the Mishkan. And, uh, and what happens over there is that... Um, he looks at the nature of the cost of of how much the Beit Hamikdash uh, actually actually cost, and um, the and he and he makes a cheshbon of how expensive uh, the the Beit Hamikdash were. Anyway, obviously the Mishkan in the in the desert was the cheapest one, you know, to make, and then the expenses just got bigger and bigger, and. The, the second Beit HaMikdash, which is eventually renovated by King Herod, was the most grand, the most expensive out of all the structures that existed. 
Uh, and then he, he highlights the irony that, yes, it was grand on a physical level, but as grand as it was physically, spiritually, uh, the level had deteriorated completely. Whereas Moshe Rabbeinu's Mishkan, which was uh, the least fancy of all, had the highest level of spirituality because it was constructed by Moshe Rabbeinu and the people of the of, of that generation were on a much higher level spiritually. And it just gets, from a spiritual point of view, it gets lower and lower as you move further and further away from Sinai. Uh, in physical terms, it, it, you know, it escalates. But in spiritual terms, you know, it descends. And, of course, that's the irony. In other words, many a time you'll find that, uh, you know, the the places with the least amount of um, financial investment can sometimes have the greatest amount of, of spirituality. Um, and so these are all different just ways of looking at, you know, how the evolution, if you can call it, of of Mishkan and Mikdash, you know, come, comes about. Um, anyway, so that's the... That's the Chidush that he has, and I'll I'll just end off there and wish you a good Shabbos. And if there are any questions, just shout out. Otherwise, um, we will we will catch up on uh, on our return. Okay. Is there so? Is there? Uh, can we draw a, um, a kind of um, a balance or scale of? Like the more materiality, the more gashmius, the less spirituality. So, so yes, on one level, is that you, a kind of message there? Like a yeah, that it's it's a kind of like a look. The ideal goal is to be able to infuse all of nature with sanctity, which means that as big as you're going to get, and as and as you know, like the Beit Hamidash, if you if you're able to achieve the goal, then you would be able to take whatever's available and and make it holy. But in reality, it's really, really hard to do that. You there's so many, there's so many um, you know, there's so many areas that one trips up in the journey to wealth and grand expression, then then you know, sometimes you're better off without it. And I think that's it's just kind of like a, a counterpoint for what the ideal goal is and eventually what the but what the real, what the real, what the reality of life is, and you sort of got to compare them. So, you know, a person who's been blessed with wealth shouldn't look at it and say, "Well, I got to get rid of it because, um, you know, a human being is going to be smashed. We never passed the test of wealth. If Hashem gave it to you, then it's for a good purpose, and you must do whatever you can to be makadesh, whatever you have. At the same time, you have to realize what a major test it is. That often, most of the time, it just really puts uh, a real a real difficulty in front of us because you know arrogance crawls not far behind and this is the biggest issue you know you put so much effort into the 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 expense of it as opposed to the bare bones basics of it where the you can feel the real quality so you know would we prefer to interact with the Beit Hamikdash of Shlomo Amelech compared to the Mishkan of of Moshe Rabbeinu probably in other words the building was gorgeous. And it was, you know, you, you felt the grandeur of it. And that's really Lechavod Lutifaret, you know. It's, but at the same time, that there's no question that the level of spirituality and the caliber of people and how they behaved, you know, was impacted by all of this. And in the end of the day, if you uh, are specifically sensitive to spirituality, you would have preferred the smaller 
modest abode of Mishkan in the in the Midbar. Um, so I think it has to be balanced as to what the ideal is, and eventually, hopefully, we'll achieve it, as opposed to you know the trappings along the way as to where we where we come short. You know, so whenever we're building something that is that is unbelievably grand, we have to make sure that it doesn't diminish our our purpose and the goal. Um, you know, with all the periphery stuff. I think that's more or less where where it's going. All right. Yeah, one travel yeah, well. Thank you, Rabbi. Travel okay, well. Okay, guys. Nice to see you all. Have a good Shabbos. Yeah, good Shabbos. Shabbos. Yeah. Travel, travel well. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Bye. All right.